0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on PA Books, the author of The Coal Barons Played Cuban Giants, Paul Brown.
0: Paul Brown, author of the book The Coal Barons Played Cuban Giants. Who are the Coal Barons?
1: The Coal Barons were kind of a generic term that some of the Philadelphia and other papers used for the coal region teams like Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Carbondale, Hazelton, um, and, and the coal barons is generally, wilkes was really the team that officially was the coal barons, um, but they used it for a number of the anthracite area teams.
0: And your subtitle is The History of Early Professional Baseball in Pennsylvania 1886 to 1896. Why did you pick those years?
1: Um, there was kind of a movement in Pennsylvania baseball circles in that period to start a Pennsylvania State League, and not all of the leagues were called Pennsylvania State League or even Pennsylvania State Association, but they were all being put together by people who had the goal of, of having a state league, uh, and, and that that movement lasted about that period, 1886 to 1896.
0: What's your interest in baseball, 19th century baseball?
1: Uh, actually, I started doing research on a distant relative um, who was one of the original New York Giants, uh, played under the name of Pete Gillespie in in our area of Carbondale. He was known as Padney Gillespie. His real name was Patrick, uh, like Patrick Harrington, uh, the golfer. That's, the name was spelt that way. And in doing research on him, I came across um, a Carbondale team that played in 1895 and then started digging a little bit further and uh, came across the Cuban Giants. Uh, which was one of the early black professional teams who played in the Northeast Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and Harrisburg areas a lot uh, in those years. Um, and it just sort of st- rolled over and over until uh, you know it turned into this book. I just kept following the research where it took me.
0: Carbondale had a professional team?
1: Carbondale had a professional team in 1895 and 1896, and then later on in the 40s after the war, from 46, I think, to 51, they played in the North Atlantic League.
0: What did it mean in 1895, 1896 to, to be a professional baseball team?
1: Um, it meant you were lucky if you got dinner, you know, <laughs> in the minor leagues. Uh, you were lucky if the team lasted past the 4th of July. Um, there, there was It was not a lucrative profession, but it was better than a dollar a, a day in the mines um, or working on railroads or whatever else these guys might have you know, gotten. I mean, there was a lot of them who were very... Uh, intelligent people who, you know, some of them became doctors, some of them became lawyers, things like that. But for the most part, these were guys who would have been uh, working in the mines or the farms or something like that without baseball. So it was an, un- an unsafe uh, economic existence, but it was a better shot than most of them would have had to make money in a hurry.
0: Was it a full-time job for them?
1: For most of the uh, people in the sanctioned leagues, uh, the leagues that were kind of sanctioned by the uh, National Association, um, the National League, and the American Association at the time had a, a parent organization that kind of managed the minor leagues, not like they are today where each team has a, a sponsorship of a minor league team. Um, they were independent teams, but they came under the umbrella of, of Major League Baseball. Most of those guys, it was a full-time job in the season. Off-season, you had to find your own living. If you got hurt, forget about it. You're you know, you're on your own. There was no pensions. There was no... Uh, um, social insurance of any kind, medical insurance or anything like that. But as long as you could play, um, yeah, you could make a living, scratch out a living more than get rich. But
0: Were those teams, those minor league teams, feeders for the major league teams like they are today?
1: Yeah. Um, one of the big problems with the minor league teams was a lot of times the major leagues just raided the players. Um, and that was one of the reasons they formed these associations, was to try and cut a deal with each other that, you know, they wouldn't uh, completely... Uh, take all the great players right away or all the good players right away, that there'd be some rules about, you know, if you developed a player, you'd get something for the player. But you were at the mercy of the bigger the bigger leagues. They, they were not particularly generous, usually.
0: Well, when you started to put this book together, where, where'd
1: you find all the material for it? Um, thank God for the internet. Um, a lot of the newspaper sites are online, and, uh, you know, that was where the starting point was. And then as I got into it and I found out who were the championship team in a given year was, or the more interesting team in a year. Um, I, I'd go after, um, you know, I might go to the local library for that city. Um, the uh, Pennsylvania Library here in Harrisburg helped with a couple of cities that I couldn't find elsewhere. Um, but a lot of it was just the newspaper records that
0: were saved. Did you have to piece together the whole season and figure out who the teams were and what the leagues were and who the champion was? There's
1: some guidance. Um, the Minor League Encyclopedia is an excellent book. I think it's in its third edition. And it uh, you know, has gone back further and further with each each edition into the 19th century. So you can get an outline of who the teams were, who the leagues were. Um, and it's usually pretty accurate. You can see who was the champion or who f- was on top when the league fell apart, which is also a common occurrence. Um, so there was some outlines that you can find from secondary sources. And then the rest of you have to pretty much chase down from, from newspaper sources.
0: So why would leagues fall apart? Um,
1: well, Wishful thinking. Uh, I mean, a lot of these leagues were, or, or teams were really formed as kind of a, a mix between civic pride and wishful thinking. Um, every town seemed to feel to be an up and coming town and had to have a professional baseball team. And that's why you see small towns like Carbondale, Mahanoy City, and, and others uh, like that having teams in these leagues. And they'd start the season out um, hopeful that they were going to have a great team and a great season. And a lot of the teams did well on the field but still didn't get supported something went wrong if there was a big strike in the mines in the region or railroads or something like that. All of a sudden people wouldn't have money to go to the games and, and things would fall apart. Um, this period, the the panic of 1893 uh, fell in the middle of it, uh, or not the middle but towards the end of it, and um, that had some impact. The Brotherhood War in, in baseball when the major leagues, um, the players went off and tried to form their own league in 1890 and then the National League and at that time the American Association was the rival uh, professional league. And after 1890 there was some hard feelings even between, the players were beaten, uh, kind of betrayed by some of their uh, sponsors. And when the leagues came back together in 1891 there were some hard feelings between the American Association and the National League. And then in uh, 1892 they uh, the nationally kind of absorbed the American Association. So all of a sudden, instead of 16 teams, there was 12. So there was less need for players and more players trying to get into the minor leagues. And you know what money was coming from the major leagues kind of started to dry up a little. So there was a lot of economic challenges for these small businessmen. And that's what they really were. They were small entrepreneurs trying to start these teams.
0: Any of them make money on owning baseball teams?
1: Yeah, some of them did. one of the, the rivals of the Pennsylvania State Leagues, there was, there was some hard feelings between Pat Powers, who became the leader of the Eastern League, and Henry Diddlebach, who was a sports editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who was kind of the patron saint of, of this movement of Pennsylvania State Leagues. And uh, there were some hard feelings between them, and that caused some of the drama in the book, but uh, Powers made some money uh, over the years. Uh, and some of the bigger minor league owners in the bigger markets made some money. But most of them were, were small businessmen creating a job for themselves almost.
0: Are there any, you mentioned the Eastern League, are there any leagues today or teams today that can trace their history back to this era? Um,
1: there, there's no direct links. One of the most interesting teams in, in this, this period is, is the Philadelphia Athletics, who started out as a, a major league team. Actually, they started out as a professional team uh, outside of a league, I believe, they got into um, the National Association. I'm sorry, they, originally they were an amateur team or semi-amateur. Uh, they didn't admit to some of the payments that were made, but okay. uh, originally they were in the, one of the amateur leagues, the, the top amateur league, which was the top league of the time. And then that became a professional league, the National Association, and they carried through there. And um, then they w- were dropped in, in, when the National League broke away from that group Philadelphia. Uh, one Philadelphia team went, but it wasn't the athletics. And they kind of fell by the wayside. That was in 1876. And the athletics kind of fell by the wayside. They were still, I believe, a professional team using that name in most of those seasons. And then they came back in 1881 as a professional uh, team and became a major league team in 1882 with the American Association. And then when the after the Players League, when the, the two leagues combined, the athletics again weren't carried over. And uh, one of the, the principals in that group um, had them in, I think, the Eastern League for one year. And then they, uh, you know, they, they kind of disappeared again and then they came back as, as a, a professional team. And in 1896, uh, Bill Scharsig, who was involved in almost all the incarnations of the 1880s athletics and the 1890s athletics, um, brought them into the Pennsylvania State, uh, created a team using that name and brought it into Pennsylvania state league and then they moved on towards the end of that season to the Atlantic Association, I believe. And, uh, and then it became, you know, they stayed in that league for a while and then it became the Allentown Peanuts in the later part of the 1890s. Um, So the athletics, there's no direct trace, but it's an interesting team. It it has kind of this uh, strange history of existing as a professional and then a major league and then a semi-pro and
0: just kind of, and a lot of the same people were involved with it. You mentioned the Allentown Peanuts. And was another team uh, that caught my eye in here, the Solar Tips. Yeah. Kind of, not the kind of name you'd M- find for a sports no. team today. M-
1: Mundell's Solar Tips, uh, uh, John Mundell um, made shoes. And he, the Solar Tip was a children's shoe. It was an extra uh, tough tip that they put on the shoe, probably an extra layer of leather or something like that um, for the rough wear of children. And it was a pretty successful company, and they also had uh, military contracts, I believe, or government contracts to supply shoes. So I'm assuming in the 19th century it was military. Um, And they got to be a fairly good-sized company. Uh, John Mundell Jr. uh, apparently liked baseball, and his father kind of sponsored a baseball team that he managed for a number of years. And they they started out as a um, trade team, trade league team, and then they— ended up for part of the year in the Interstate League, which was a, a, a minor league team, and it w- was in the uh, chain of development of the state leagues. It wasn't, a, it wasn't officially the Pennsylvania State League, but uh, the Mundell Solar Tips ended up playing for part of a season in this minor league team, and they did very well, but then they dropped out over some uh, difference in philosophy, I guess, um, of, of how professionals and amateurs should conduct themselves, and they went back into the trade leagues. And they, they hung around. They had teams going
0: for into the early 20th century. They'd pop up. Did, so it sounds like from your book that new teams would form and old teams would disappear and leagues would form and disappear every year.
1: Yeah. It, it was,
0: it's kind of funny.
1: Um, the minor leagues develop players now. Back then, they also developed teams, the lower minors they they put together a team in a town, developed some talent, developed some financial wherewithal, and uh they had to get picked up by a bigger league. And that, that was one of the you know, part of the drama of this period in the in Pennsylvania, particularly Scranton and Wilkesburg. Um the Eastern League wanted them. Pat Powers wanted Scranton and Wilkesburg in the league and, and there was all kinds of uh, things to try to try and persuade or force or trick or, you know, whatever it took to get get the, the teams that they wanted. Um, so, Pennsylvania wanted to have Scranton and Wilkes-Barre. The Eastern League wanted to have Scranton and Wilkes-Barre in with the New York and New Jersey teams. Um, so, it was sort of, they were being recruited. They'd start in one league, and then they might, if they were good, they might get recruited to the next level up until they moved. Entire teams would move into the next higher league. And it happens occasionally where a minor league team would be moved wholesale into a major league, especially in the years where there was like three major leagues when the Union Association came along in 1884, the Players League, um, which was actually the players came over, but then the, the other two leagues had to fill their league somehow. Um, so there was actually cases where you'd start out as a minor league player and wake up the next morning
0: and you were in the major leagues because your team moved. You mentioned that uh, the these minor league teams were feeders for the major league teams, but were there also major league Players on their way down who would play for these?
1: Yeah, teams? Um, in fact, in, in 1894 in Allentown, um, King Kelly, who was the most popular player of that period, Slide Kelly Slide, actually refers to a real person. There was a song written about him. Uh, him sliding, a picture, a painting of him sliding, graced a number of taverns in the United States in that period. Uh, so King Kelly was this this great player, very popular player, not the best player. Probably the most popular, and uh, he he had some problems he he drank a bit um, and in eighteen ninety four he ended up in Allentown because um, Al Johnson, who had been one of the financiers of the Players League and been friends with some of the players, including Kelly, bought the trolley system in Bethlehem and Allentown and uh, Developed Well, there was a ballpark there. The previous owners had developed a ballpark, which was common. The trolley lines would develop a ballpark at the end of one of their runs and, you know, picnic grounds and uh, zoos and everything else to get people to ride the trolley there. And uh, so Johnson took over the Allentown Bethlehem uh, trolley system and brought Kelly in to manage this team. And Kelly brought in uh, Pete Browning, who was one of the best players of that period, although he had some severe mental problems and other things. He had, a, he had, I think it was mastosis since he was a child. He was deaf. Uh, he had developed some emotional problems related to that and then some drinking problems to compensate for that. Um, so he was he, a great player, a fantastic hitter. Um, named all of his bats. Thought there was a number of hits in each bat and when he reached that number of hits he put it in his basement. Uh, kept this, all of his bats uh, until the day he died, I guess. Um, but a great player, even though he had his quirks, but he was on his way down at, at this period too. Jocko Milligan, who was kind of a, a, a guy who was still a pretty good player, player-manager type of a guy at that period, eventually became uh, more of a manager. And, and he, he did well. Most of the rest of them kind of fell by the wayside after that year. And Kelly died uh, at the end of that season as a, in his 30s. Um, But they had a great, they had basically an all-star team in 1894 in Allentown from guys who were, you know, kind of on their way down, but still great names. He was the manager also? Kelly, yes. Yeah, he was the manager. Um, One of the lines that was in the papers was, he can't manage himself. Now he's going to try and manage a ball team. And that was pretty much turned out to be true. Um, But they, uh, yeah, he managed the team. And the deal was... um, any profit the team made was his to keep. Um, Johnson didn't really need the money. He liked Kelly, and he thought it would be a great draw for his trolley line. And and he was. I mean, the first game, they they brought Boston in an, ex- an exhibition game. Boston had been the champion the year before. Um, it was um, Boston in the National League. Uh, but but um, I think they used the name the Reds red stockings at that time, and then later on became the Braves. Um, so they drew a big crowd to see the world
0: champions play in Allentown. How would they decide who a league champion was? Did they have playoffs, championship games? They
1: had um, standings, I mean that was, that was the, the main way, although it didn't always work out quite the way we'd expect it to work out. They uh, sometimes had split seasons and would have playoffs that way, first half champion versus the second half champion. Wasn't too much in the way of divisions. I think there may have been one year that one league used like an East and a West division, Um, but I'm not sure that league finished. Uh, So they they did have their championships, and sometimes they just have the first and second place team play each other for an exhibition series. And they sometimes would have like nine games in, you know, split two games with your city, two games with my city, and then five games on the road, just trying to, know, the biggest cities in the league or maybe go to Philadelphia. So they had interesting ways of uh, determining champions and and also of coming up with some sort of a postseason thing. What was sports writing like then? It was um, dramatic. Uh, Fun to read? Fun to read. A lot of cliches. um, Sometimes racist. The Cuban Giants were an all-black team, and there's also a team called the Gorums that played. Uh, in 1889, the, the Cuban Giants and the Gorums both played in, in the Middle States League, which was one of these leagues. The next year, um, most of the Cuban Giants moved to a team called the Monarchs of York, um, and although Frank Grant and Clarence Williams played for Harrisburg. And sometimes you would see references you know, to them that were less th- than— Politically correct, uh, usually not too bad, and usually, um, no matter what they said or how badly they said it, they always you know, highlighted that these guys were great ballplayers. You know, even you know, you, no matter what you, you think otherwise, these guys were great ballplayers. So it was sort of a, kind of a split personality type thing when it came to that
0: stuff. So this was forty, well, f- more than fifty years before Jackie Robinson, and you had white teams playing against black teams on the same field. Yep.
1: Um, Into the 1880s, um, there there were black players in organized baseball. The first black major leaguer was Moses Fleetwood Walker, and his brother Welday played on that team a little bit after him. So uh, Fleet Walker played, you know, the first game, and then a couple games later his brother was also playing with them. That was uh, with Toledo in the American Association. They were brought in as an expansion team in, in 1884, I think which was the union association year um so there was a major two major leaguers at least before uh Jackie Robinson i think there was another one who uh played as a white player he he passed as they said um so there was some of that and in in the high mi- uh minors into 18 i think 1889 um there was uh, a few players like Frank Grant, who was later in the Hall of Fame, uh, played in Harrisburg on a team that Ewe Jennings also played in. They're the first two uh, teammates, one black, one white, who made the major leagues or made the Hall of Fame. Um, so there was there's a lot of activity there. Around 1887, the the door started to close. Um, organized baseball, its unwritten rule, started to come into place and. Uh, uh, they just even grant ended up going to the cuban giants because they they, even though he was a great player they kind of were squeezing him out when um i think it was the the 1890 season um when york and harrisburg was were battling again the cuban giants and harrisburg had battled in 1889 for the league championship in 1890 it was york and harrisburg harrisburg left the league before the end of the season some say because they realized they couldn't catch york Um, but they went up to i believe the atlantic league atlantic association and um, clarence williams and frank grant both played for harrisburg team grant they finally accepted that was the hang-up of getting them into the atlantic league the harrisburg team because they really didn't want black players Uh, they finally accepted grant who was a pretty gentlemanly guy and a great player well-respected. Williams was, Williams belongs in the Hall of Fame, I think. Uh, he, he was a great player as well, but he uh, sometimes got himself into a little bit of tr- trouble. He had a temper and was maybe a little bit less uh, acceptable than, than Grant
0: was. So there were, there were integrated teams, not just like yes. a black
1: team playing a white team, but there was integrated teams. Integrated teams in this period, yeah, uh, all the way up to the Triple AAA. Um, Grant played with Buffalo in in the, uh, at that point, again, the American... Or, no, I'm sorry,
0: International League. Oh, did they have levels then, like AAA, AA, single A, BC? Well, they had uh,
1: A, B, C, and D, uh, and E and F, I think, too. Um, and I think the Pennsylvania State Leagues, uh, the, the leagues that went into organized ball, not all these leagues went into organized ball, uh, but but some of the Pennsylvania State Leagues did, and pretty much a Class D league um, by their reckonings back then.
0: You have... a. A game here, May 4th of 1889 marked the first game between the Cuban Giants and Harrisburg, the two main contenders for the Middle States Championship. According to the same scout, there were 3,000 spectators, 900 of whom were colored partisans of the visiting club. So you had integrated crowds too. Yes.
1: yes. Um, the Harrisburg had a, a pretty good-sized black community at that time as well. Um, I don't think that the Cuban Giants had a lot of fans that were following them from city to city because I don't think the money was there. Um, and transportation, of course, was more difficult in those days. But in the cities that they played where there was a black uh, population, they, they drew a lot of support from their own. Uh, were they Cubans? No, and they weren't giants either. Uh, <laughs> the name was... Th- there's different stories about the name. Uh, one of them was is that you know, they, by saying they were Cubans, um, that it was easier for them to get games with white teams because they weren't black; they were Cubans, so uh, that was okay. Uh, and the Giants, the, the New York Giants, were one of the best teams and most popular teams. So a lot of teams would take the name Giants and they put the name together. There's stories that they spoke like a gibberish to pretend they were speaking Spanish, but that's pretty much been debunked.
0: Uh, that that probably didn't really happen. Did they have? Did the Cuban Giants have home games where the white teams would go to play them yes. at their stadiums? Um,
1: in 1889, they were headquartered in Trenton. Um, they, they played out of a couple of New, uh, New Jersey cities over the years. Both they and the Gorhams also did a, played a lot of games in, in New York City. Um, but Trenton was their home team, the league, in 1889 when they were with the Pennsylvania State or the
0: Middle States League. Was there one big league that was a, one major-minor league that is the thread that ties all these years together? You refer to Pennsylvania State League, but it wasn't really called the Pennsylvania State League.
1: There was several Pennsylvania State Leagues. Towards the end, from 1892 to 1896, there were the Pennsylvania State League. 1886 to, I think, 1888, they were the Pennsylvania State Association. Then there was the Middle State League, which was, uh, it started out as five Pennsylvania teams and the Trenton. Cuban Giants uh, and they picked up some other uh, they picked up a team from uh, Delaware they picked up a team from Connecticut that didn't last long but it was almost always all Pennsylvania leagues then the Eastern Interstate League was the 1890 league with the Monarchs of York it was interstate in name only they were all Pennsylvania teams so then they took that name again Pennsylvania State League after that so there was a movement to have a Pennsylvania State League but it was fighting against the the natural tendency of these uh, cities to, to compete with New York, or New Jersey, or Maryland. Uh,
0: you mentioned um, a couple of the, the towns that had teams, and in your book you talk about Pottsville, and um, Danville, and Mount Carmel, and Hazelton. And was it predominantly in the anthracite region, or was it all across the state that you had this, this many minor league teams?
1: It was mainly in eastern Pennsylvania, but Al- Altoona and Johnstown frequently had teams in the league. Pittsburgh had a team in the league half of a year. Uh, it was the year of the Homestead strike, which is covered a little bit in that book. Um, is that
0: before the Pirates existed?
1: Yes. Um, well, no, I'm sorry. It, it, well, I think at that time they were called the Alleghenies. But they were going head to head with a major league team. Um, they became the Pirates later on. And that's covered a little bit in the book, too. Uh, a pitcher by the name of Mark Baldwin um, during that time when the American Association and the National League were kind of feuding after the players' war, um, brought some players from one team that were supposedly signed with one team. He brought them over to Pittsburgh uh, sort of surreptitiously in spite of contracts. And then the the big guys sided with Pittsburgh, which was a National League franchise against this American, it was the St. Louis Browns, American Association Browns. Um, And after that, they were called the Pirates because they had pirate hired these players. So the name isn't exactly a compliment. And were the Phillies in Philadelphia at the time? Yes, the Phillies were in Philadelphia. Um, As I said, the athletics and the Phillies had been uh, rivals in Philadelphia. And then when the leagues combined, the athletics were set aside and the Phillies remained. And then the athletics became a, a minor league team. And there was some thoughtful scheduling to try and be around when the Major League team was on the road so that, you know, people wanted to see baseball. You weren't
0: going head to head too often with the, the Major League team. Was, was there this kind of proliferation of Minor League teams across the country, or was it something particular to this area, or you know, if you went to Oregon or Texas, would you have found the same thing?
1: It was at the beginning of this period, it was mainly in the East. It gradually grew out into the Midwest and then the West. Pacific Coast League's been around a long time. A San Francisco team toured the East in 1876, um, so I mean there was activity out there. The South, there was some some leagues down in the South. Um, they didn't get into organized baseball real early, but they came in gradually later on. So it, it was this was a period when it was growing.
0: You you talk a little bit at the beginning of the book about the the early history of baseball, and you said there was an 18, 1833 team that played, um, I forget where, if I can find it, oh, Olympic Ball Club, founded in 1833. And, um, Abner Doubleday did not invent baseball?
1: Abner Doubleday did not invent baseball. He may never have played baseball. There doesn't seem to be any record of him. Uh, he, he was a pretty prolific writer and he kept diaries and stuff like that. And there's, I don't think anybody's ever found anything that said baseball. Um, that was started back when, uh, Al Spaulding, um, the Spalding yes. baseball. Mm-hmm. He, he was a, a pitcher in the early days of baseball and became a, a businessman making baseballs and equipment, became fairly wealthy. And by 1903, I, I'm thinking, um, they were having a debate. Henry Chadwick was one of the first uh, baseball writers who was referred to as the father of baseball sometimes. Uh, and he, he was English, and he said that the game came from rounders. Uh, it was evolved. It wasn't invented by Americans, and, and Spaulding didn't like that. Uh, so the, they had a, uh, like a survey, and, and they asked people to tell their early stories about baseball. And this guy Abner Groves wrote this story that uh, when he was a little kid in one thousand, eight hundred and thirty-nine, Abner Doubleday, who lived in Cooperstown, uh, you know, drew the plans for baseball in the dirt, and they started playing baseball. May not have been a lie. It was another Abner Doubleday. In, in Cooperstown around that time. It was a cousin, I think, of the general. And uh, maybe that's what he remembered. But it most likely was some older kid taught you, to, or your father taught you to play baseball when you were little, and he might have taught you to play a game slightly different um, because of the the field that you played on. You had to play a little bit different than maybe, or because you only had four guys on each team or whatever. So this kid, um, probably an older kid, taught him how to play baseball, and he thought it was invented then. But it goes back in... To this, I mean, there's there's bat and ball games uh, uh, depicted in, in Egyptian records. So I mean, there's been bat and ball games for a long, long time. Um, <coughs> the direct lineage of baseball that we know today comes from the Knickerbockers in New York, who developed uh, special rules for town ball. They did away with pluggings, if you remember from when you were a kid getting hit with the ball, and uh, that actually was done at the adult level. And then they were all amateur town ball. Uh, usually happened. Uh, on market days in, in rural areas and things like that. Um, so it's, it's a really old game. It did develop probably from some English game. There is a uh, an English game called baseball that predates rounders, which is an interesting twist. A, a guy by the name of David Block has written some, some great uh, stuff on early baseball, including a book that came out not too long ago, tracing it back into England. Uh, so no, Double Day didn't. Uh, Invent baseball.
0: So the Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, New York, based on a myth? Yeah, they probably should have a statue to Abner Groves instead of uh, <laughs> Abner Doubleday. Um, if you, uh, th- there are leagues now that play by 19th century rules. How, what are the rules different than what we're used to? Um, a, a lot
1: of these te- those teams play by the 1860s rules. Um, which are similar but not the same as ours. Um, the 1840s rules, the balls were softer. Th- they were made like knit wrapped around a, a piece of pla- a rubber or something, uh, cork sometimes. Um, the ball didn't go as far it, when you hit it. They pitched underhand. Um, people played with their bare hands. And people played Major League Baseball with bare hands into the 1890s. Catchers were the first ones, then first basemen to use gloves. and Pitchers were the last. Uh, there's a quote from uh, I think it, I think it is from from King Kelly in the 1890s saying nobody wants to see a game played with gloves. So it it, it was different in those regards in different years. 1887 um, it's difficult to combine the st- or compare the statistics from 1887 to other years because um, in that year a walk counted as a hit and an at bat, so it kind of skews the things. There's also four strikes that year, the only year that was four strikes. Balls went from, well, there were no called balls and strikes in the Knickerbocker Rules if that came a little bit later. And it started out um, that the balls, uh, you know, every third missed ball was a ball and it was sort of like nine strikes. Officially there was seven strikes and three, or seven balls and three strikes. And it got down into 1887. to five balls, but then there was, they upped it to four strikes. So there was a lot of different things. And it's, it's the, the debate that still goes on today about the competition between the pitcher and the batter. How do we make it fair, but still interesting to
0: the fans? And they were, they were playing with that since the 1840s. Was there one governing body that decided on these or would you go to one town and have one set of rules and another town and another league have another set of rules?
1: There was a governing body, uh, frequently, they negotiated the rules between the National League and the American Association in, in that period. In the early days of the American Association, they had their own rules, and that carried on until 1887. Again, I think it was, was the year that was kind of the, could be off a little on that, but I think that was the year that they kind of made a compromise and said, okay, we're going to play by the same rules. Some of the, Pen- the Pennsylvania State Leagues were generally affiliated um, or friends with the leadership of the American Association, maybe more than affiliated. And they frequently adopted the American Association rules. Occasionally, you would have um, some ground rules that were different in different towns and different cities Um, because of the size of the walls. um, That's when, uh, like the ground rule double, was sometimes in the early days a real ground rule. They made it the day they got there, and they said, "Okay, your field and left field is only two hundred. You can't have a home run for uh, hit two hundred feet." So there was some ground rules put in place in those ways. So it did sometimes vary, but there was a governing body. Even going back to 1857, um, the Amateur National Association um, started to have meetings. And Chadwick was very, uh, the writer was very influential with the rules committees and stuff like that. Um, so there was always some attempt to to make things uniform. The 1833 Olympics really played town ball, which was a predecessor of baseball, although later on there's some some discussion that they may have played a, a diamond
0: shape rather than a square-shaped field, which was one of the changes between baseball and town ball. Were the dimensions the same in this period, 1886 to 1896, the, the 90 feet to the bases and 60 feet, six inches to the pitcher's mound? The, the 90 feet to the bases is
1: pretty early. Um, I, I'm not sure the Knickerbockers were exactly there, but they did paces more than, than feet, uh, and it's pretty close. Um, so that's pretty old. The distance to of the mound uh, wasn't 60 foot 6 inches until, I, I'm going to say 1889, somewhere in that era. Um, before that, it, it was 50-some feet and 40. The, the softball has some of the old rules. Like what you see in softball is, is close to what some of the early pitching distances and stuff were. They pitched underhand until 1884. You couldn't, it was illegal to pitch overhand. Although they gradually over the side, it was supposed to be like this, and then gradually started to come out this way and this way, and they started to curve balls pretty in the in the underhand days. Um, so they were always playing, trying to get a little advantage. Uh, but by 1884, they finally allowed the, the pitchers to pitch overhand. And I think both leagues reached by 1884. There, there, there's a, there was a staggered year national league accepted it earlier than the american association i think
0: was there nine people on a team at the time
1: nine people on a team uh the knickerbockers in kind of claim to have invented the position of shortstop doc adams one of their one of their early players um, claims to have created that position oh, it was eight before that it was it could be eight could be ten there, there was an argument for a while they should have ten players and ten ten innings um, but nine seems to make you know, the most sense it balances, maybe the 90-foot, the 9-inch, or the 9 innings, the 9 nine players. But it did evolve, and that was early. That was in the pre-1850s or pre-1857 period.
0: If you went to a ball game in 1890 in one of the anthracite towns in somewhere across Pennsylvania saw a minor league game, what would it look like? What would the experience be like?
1: Depending on the year. It would be pretty similar to what you would see today um, for a, uh, like a semi-protein maybe. Um, The quality of the field, the manicuring of the grass, that wasn't happening. Uh, They had pretty good fields though, I mean, and they put a lot into some of them, mostly wooden grandstands, a lot of grandstand fires over the years. Um, Press boxes were something that the reporters fought. To get like special places where they, in, in the earliest days, they wanted like some sort of shade. You know, that was a big thing that the press wanted, and they wanted a table they could mark their score on and have that not knocked over by the players on a regular basis. So there was little things like that. But as it as it evolved into into this period, um, you, you would see wooden grandstands. Um, you might see a telegraph wire to the to the. A field house that would then go to the railroad station, and that's where all the information was disseminated throughout the country. Um, you would see um, folding chairs or or bleachers. You'd see a ladies' section a lot of the times. That was a big thing trying to get the women to come to the game to, uh, you know, build up the market, be a bit more respectable, cut down on some of the rowdyism. Um, so you would see a lot of things. You might not see hot dogs until the later period, because they weren't really invented, but you would see uh, sales of lemonade and uh, um, some sausages of some type. Um, peanuts and Cracker Jacks came along, Cracker Jacks in the 1890s, I think. Um, so You would see a lot of things that you would see today, but you
0: might see a guy pitching on your
1: hand, guys out in the field with no gloves, uh,
0: four strikes. Know, did, some they, different things. did they have pennants and T-shirts and hats and things like that, concessions?
1: Mm, they had concessions, but again, it was mostly food. Scorecards, they sold scorecards fairly early. Advertising on the fences, um, you would see a lot of that. The pennants you would see were the championship pennant or maybe team name pennants, but they wouldn't sell them. You know. um, The players had uniforms, um, but they didn't sell T-shirts or things like that.
0: Each team had a nickname.
1: They were really nicknames in those days, for the most part. Um, one of the reasons where, like, the Boston Red Stockings became the Boston Braves, and then the Boston Red Sox came along in a different league, which was a rival to the National League at the time, and took a name like how, the Chicago Cubs were originally the Chicago White Stockings. How could you know this happen? Well, there wasn't real protection of intellectual property, and the names were generally given by the sports writers and one team might have three or four different names depending on which sports writer was writing about them and, and, a, and a rival city you know might call you something other than what your hometown press could and sometimes if you had two papers and two sports writers who both thought themselves influential they might call them you know they might have their own pet name for the team usually it was like the official legal name was like you know the Harrisburg club of Harrisburg so it was usually associated with the town the nickname was a real nickname teams would have road trips? Teams had road trips. Um, One of the big things in in the minor leagues was to get discounts on your rail fare. If you're going to be successful, you better have the trolley uh, system supporting you at home. You better get discounts on your rail fare to move around your state or wherever your area of play was. Discounts on the hotels. The ability of of the manager, business manager And usually the manager was more of a business manager, and the captain was more of the field leader. But if you had a good manager who could negotiate these special concessions, you had a better chance of succeeding. And if a league had a tight circuit and you could go to a railroad or two, rather than have to deal with a bunch of different railroads, if you could be along one or two railroads tracks with all your teams, you'd probably get a better deal. What did a ticket cost? For the games? Yeah. Frequently, 25 cents. That was, that was common, kind of a common price. The uh, National League won a 50 cents. They were the high-priced league. The um, American Association charged a quarter. Minor leagues tended to charge around
0: a quarter, maybe sometimes less. You have a story in here, which I won't be able to find now, of a, a player uh, who was, a manager who was fined uh, $5 at a Harrisburg game because he suggested that the umpire was in the pocket of gamblers.
1: Yeah, sometimes they didn't take kindly to that. That was always, uh, there were gamblers involved with baseball long before the Black Sox. Uh, Hulbert, one of the reasons he's one of his excuses at least for starting the National League and breaking away from the National Association uh, of Professional Players was that there was too much gambling involved and he was going to clean it up. And, and he pretty much did. He, 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 um, the National League didn't allow drinking on the field. Didn't or you know sale of liquor in the stands? Um, they charged 25 cents more than the American Association, and and they were very strict on gambling. or tried to be. Um, the American Association was nicknamed the Beer and Whiskey League. It was mainly owned by uh, brewers and and distillers um, because the National League was pushing their product out of their parks. So one of the reasons the American Association got going was. Um, the, the brewers
0: and such wanted to,
1: to have that market.
0: You do mention, now this I guess was a, a different league than the American Association, Charles Stegmeyer, one of the founders of wilkes still operational Stegmeyer Brewing Company, was the father of Wilkes-Barre baseball magnate George it was
1: It was very common, again going back to John Mundell Jr. with the solar tips, his father had the shoes, he wanted to be involved in baseball. It was very common for the younger generation of the leaders, the business leaders of a community, to be involved in baseball and and in the starting of the teams. Um, Al Casey, who started the Casey Hotel in Scranton, which stood for uh, probably 75 or 80 years, was a big uh, magnet in Scranton for social events into the 1970s probably was one of the supporters of the Scranton franchise in that period when they were going back and forth between the Pennsylvania State League and and the Eastern League. Um, So it was common for the younger generation of the business leaders of the community to be involved in baseball, and it was almost expected. How much money did the players make? Um, Not a lot, uh, but more than they'd make mining coal. Um, It would be unusual for a minor leaguer to see much more than $500 in a season. And the money was paid usually in the season. In the major leagues, a lot of times players would get an advance on their salary. So they're kind of almost always in debt to the team owner. Minor leagues didn't usually have the money to do that. And they didn't always exist from year to year. So that was less of an issue there than in the major leagues. Um, But they weren't getting real rich. Um, There was periods where they tried to have salary caps and things like that. And that was one of the the reasons the Players League came into existence, the Brotherhood War, was because of salary caps and uh, codes of conduct that were, you know, really just an excuse to get rid of somebody you didn't like. Because one guy could get away with it if he was a really good player. The other guy, you could, you know, the rules applied to him, maybe not to this guy. And then they had ways of getting around it. They had, uh, you know, Kelly was paid so much for his picture in some contracts, to the right to use his picture. So they had, like, Salary limits in the majors even around $2,500, but um, they, the big guys got around it somehow. Were players
0: free to quit one team and go to play for another team?
1: No. Um, in, in fact, the, uh, another one of the, the reserve clause, another one of the sticking points with the Players League was um, that you couldn't leave your team. You couldn't negotiate with another team. They could If you got hurt, you're out. So they had no uh, reciprocal arrangement that helped you. But you couldn't go from from team to team. You couldn't negotiate for a better salary. Uh, But people did. And in the minor leagues, if you couldn't defend yourself, if you weren't strong enough to prevent bigger teams from raiding you or from guys just going somewhere else, um, there there was contract jumping. Contracts were ignored. If you didn't didn't enforce them, if you didn't fight to enforce them, then, then they'd be ignored. Uh, one of the interesting things in that period, when you might see a woodcut in the paper of a famous player, but you didn't usually see a picture of anybody. So sometimes people would go and say, "I'm Brian, and I played for uh, you know this team in in uh, San Francisco. You heard so much. I'm that, that guy." Well, you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd negotiate with somebody else's reputation, but nobody would know, you know, if you were claimed to have played in San Francisco and there's articles about this guy who was a great player in San Francisco. You could go to Scranton and get a job. And by the time they figured out who you were, (laughs) either you proved yourself or you didn't. So there was, there was funny things that they pulled like that. Did they have baseball cards? Uh, Baseball cards did come along in, in the 19th century. National League, um, quite a few of them. Old Judge was one of those. Uh, They're, they were tobacco cards. They were usually sold with tobacco products. Um, I have not found any American Association baseball cards um, but but the National League had some uh, i don 't know if there's any minor leagues that there may have been some locally produced stuff, um, but i, I don 't know of it being very prevalent
0: What remnants of these teams still exist i mean are are there hats or uniforms or ticket stubs or something that are in halls of fame or people 's collections um, m-
1: most likely pictures. Um, and, and there is some pictures in the book there of baseball cards for some of the guys who had been major leaguers or either before or after they played in these leagues. Um, team pictures. Um, there, there's some uniforms. I'm not, you know, I'm not aware of any Pennsylvania State League uniforms, but there may be some out there. Uh, maybe that that strange uniform in, in your closet of your great-grandfather. You know, send us a picture. Maybe we can figure out what it was. Um, there may be some uniforms out there. I'm not aware of any, possibly, in museums. Um, there may be some caps that survive, gloves, uh, things like that, possibly spikes, you know,
0: but um, not a lot. Are there any stadiums where you could still tell where the field was or where the stadium was or any remnants of the stadiums? Um,
1: in Harrisburg, they were playing on the island grounds. In a lot of the years that Harrisburg had a team, they, they played on the island, um, but the exact location, and that I don't know. Um, the footprint of the field, I don't know if it's the same. Some of the, like uh, Philadelphia played in some of the, the stadiums that were used by the Phillies and, and the athletics when they were major league teams. Um, there's some information in the book where I found references to addresses. Um, the the Allentown team played in Rittersville, which is now split between Allentown and Bethlehem, but at the time it was a, a separate uh Community, and, and um, there's some information. I, I think one of the fields that Allentown played on is the uh, fairgrounds. Now, that you, you know, if you're near one of the Lehigh Valley Medical Centers, they have offices that overlook the fairgrounds, and I'm pretty sure that's one of the fields they played on. So there, yeah, there is some uh, some things that can be found. Some Do of the hotels where uh, a lot of league business was contract uh, contracted and everything like that uh, conducted. Um,
0: Some of them still exist, or you can find the buildings at least. Is your interest primarily 19th century baseball, or are you interested in all sorts of baseball?
1: I'm interested in all sorts of baseball, but research, I'm stuck in the 19th century. I found so much there when I started digging around for my cousin that uh, uh, I haven't gotten out yet.
0: Do you have a collection of any sort? Because you do, like you said, you have a lot of pictures of uh, players and some reproductions of baseball cards and ads in here.
1: Yeah, I I don't have much... um, I can't afford the 19th century baseball cards. Um, I have a pretty good collection of books, in, in including a, um, a 1922 cyclopedia. It wasn't an encyclopedia of baseball. They called it a cyclopedia. So I have some early, uh, not too early, but I mean, I have first editions of, of Total Baseball and the Macmillan Encyclopedia, things like that, that I've, not in great condition, but I've scrounged up what I could, uh, but mostly books.
0: Your uh, your uh, bio on the back of the book says you're a member of SABR. What is that? For That's the Society for American Baseball Research. Um,
1: it's been around since, I, I'm going to say, the 70s. Uh, it's a great organization. They cover, they have committees on all different types of things. Um, I was just talking to Ted Knorr and Caleb Jackson. Ted's been very much involved in the Black Ball Committee, which is the history of, of, of black baseball. Um, as I said, John Thorne was the founder, who is now the official historian for Major League Baseball, was the founder of our 19th Century Committee, which is what I'm most active in. They cover a wide spectrum of things. They just had their convention last year in Philadelphia. And I got to go down for a little while for that. Uh, the 19th Century Group meets in Cooperstown every year. Um, so it's a very active organization. You can find it online, sabr.org. And, and just if any period of baseball you're interested in, any level
0: of baseball, you'll find something. What are the conventions like? It's a lot of people sitting around figuring out new ways to calculate statistics.
1: <laughs> there's the, there are statistical groups, and, and Saber metrics and all that kind of grew. I don't know if it grew directly out of that, but it's, it's uh, certainly mm-hmm. followed by a lot of our guys. Uh, and there's people who are very much historians, and there's people who are collectors of memorabilia and things like that. So a convention is, is a good mix of baseball interests. I've only been to the one, but...
0: Uh, you, you're from Carbondale, according yes. to your bio in the book, and any evidence that there was a Carbondale team there, if you go to Carbondale and look look around town or in the libraries or anything? Like um,
1: the Historical Society has some information on some of the earlier teams. I didn't find you know, exactly these teams. Uh, we do think that we know where they played. Um, the Industrial Park, which used to be the D&H Rail Yards, uh, actually I work in that park, and about halfway through the park is where we think uh, the president of our local historical society has kind of determined from what we found um, that they, that's probably where they played was in, in that rail yard before it was a rail yard, um, that that's where we think the baseball grounds were. But there's no markers or anything.
0: When you were putting this book together about minor league baseball in Pennsylvania, 1886 to 1896, was there a moment you got to where you said, boy, I really would have loved to have seen that game or seen that stadium? <laughs>
1: I would love to be able to go around and, and try and find the locations of of the stadiums and the hotels and all that stuff. That's something I, I, I'm never probably never going to do, it, but I would like to do something like that. Um, I would love to see some of these games. Um, you know, just just the, the, it was so similar, and yet the variations must have been very interesting. And and the vintage games I've seen a couple, and it is pretty neat to kind of see almost what you're used to, but that lights that slight variation can, can be real interesting.
0: Do, do, do those leagues play without gloves nowadays
1: some do some do a lot of them put on different they they study the period and they'll put on an 1860s rules game one time and then 1890s rules game another time depending on who they're playing and what they're trying to accomplish so you'll see different variations if you go to a game and and usually in,
0: in their information they'll tell you what they're going to be playing there's a couple of uh People you write about in your book who I guess played in Pennsylvania for a time and went on to to uh, major league greatness. You mentioned Kid Gleason, mm-hmm. Wilbert Robinson. Yeah, these guys were um,
1: Wilbert Robinson. was probably the, the one of them who, who uh, people might your grandfather might remember something about. He, he he was called Uncle Robbie when he was a manager. Did not Man- he manage manage Casey Stengel? Yes. Yes, he did. He managed the Brooklyn Dodgers back in, in like the teens. Um, I have a picture on my office wall of, of a 1916, uh, World Series program with his, his picture on it. Um, they called the Dodgers the Robins uh, in that period a lot because of him, Uncle Robbie's Robins. And John Montgomery Ward. John Montgomery Ward predates the, uh, Pennsylvania State Leagues. He was playing in the 1870s. Uh, he's from Bellefonte, um, went to Penn State, um, played in Williamsport, I think, in the 18 early in the early part of his career, and then went up to the major leagues. Was a pitcher, and as he got older, he couldn't keep up pitching. He became a shortstop. Uh, he became a lawyer. Um, he was one of the founders of the brothers Brotherhood that started the Players League. Um, he was he was a force to be reckoned with. Um, on and off the field and became, a, a as an attorney, he, he uh, represented a lot of players going into, you know, the 20th century.
0: And you mentioned Je- Jesse
1: Burkett, or Burkett, who is in Burkett. the Baseball Hall of Fame? Yeah, I um, don't have a lot on him off the top of my head, but he is one of the, the good players from out of this league.
0: And Huey Jennings, who you mentioned, is also in the Baseball Hall of Fame.
1: Huey Jennings, um, as I said, he played with Frank Grant a colored member of the the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, Became a great player, became a manager. Uh, He was with the 1890s Baltimore Orioles, which uh, um, uh, John McGraw was one of them. Wilbert Robinson was one of them. Just a rowdy bunch. Um, Won a lot of championships in that period. And then a lot of them went on to become managers. Uh, Jennings went on to manage uh, uh, the Tigers and Ty Cobb, he somehow managed to manage Ty Cobb. He was a lawyer as well, became a lawyer as well, practiced in Scranton, Um, he died in Scranton. It's my understanding that uh, he is a relative of of Chris Doherty, who until recently was the mayor of Scranton. Um, So he had a pretty strong connection to to the Scranton area. He wasn't from Scranton, but he was from somewhere nearby. Is this your first book? It's my first book. What's the experience like? it's It's interesting, I didn't know that's what I was doing when I started. I just got interested, as I said, in, in trying to find some history about a relative an ancestor, and uh, just got into this deeper and deeper. got uh, interested in whether you know the Carbondale team they found them in 1895 did they play again and they played you know in 1896 and then the, uh, the information about the whole leagues that they played and and then finding the Cuban Giants and all that um, I just got carried away with
0: it. I never meant to read a book, but there it is. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Paul Brown. He is the author of this book, The Cole Barons Played Cuban Giants, A History of Early Professional Baseball in Pennsylvania, 1886 to 1896. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about P.A. books.